Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, if you listen really closely, you can hear the sounds of Rob Manfred frantically calling the world's leading astrophysicist to figure out if he can send every baseball player in Major League Baseball to the moon to play the rest of the 2020 season. Can you hear it? I think I can hear it. God, you want to talk juiced balls? The ball would be flying. They're just like never playing. come down. <laughs> They're just like playing with bowling balls on the moon. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I would love to see Mike Trout just crushing dingers on the moon. I'm referring, of course, to the fact that uh, MLB and, and Commissioner Rob Manfred have been the first U.S. Pro Sports League to float a trial balloon for an idea to bring baseball back, uh, to bring sports back in general in uh, on a relatively normal time frame amid, obviously, the uh, coronavirus pandemic. Alex, can you please give me the details of this very fraught very terrible idea that MLB floated. Yeah, well, you actually have to introduce me as CDC expert Alex <laughs> Baisley because I'm I'm going to put on my expert cap here for a little bit. Um, Wait, I think I got Doctor Doctor Anthony Fauci on the line. Doctor, <laughs> please do your Fauci impersonation. I have actually never heard the man speak. Um, wow. he, he has like someone a bit of a, a raspy to the voice. Daily. <laughs> you got me. Um, yeah. <laughs> MLB wants to bring baseball back in theory um, in like May or June at the latest. And this all kind of started last week when there was a Jeff Passan uh, news update sent out a sent out a tweet at like midnight. Young you know, pass. just <laughs> a, a, a pass bomb. Is that what we call them? <laughs> uh, that baseball was considering was in the early stages of talking about bringing baseball back in May or June, doing this by basically just quarantining all 30 teams and the coaches and any other necessary employees in and around the Phoenix area. And they would just play baseball there with no contact with the outside world and no fans in the stadium. Just kind of like this really dystopian shit, you know, where like if a, I don't know, if a ball goes over the fence and no one's around to hear it like is it actually a home run i really uh, i don't know uh yeah it's re- really just a strange idea they the thinking is that there will be testing more available so that all the players can be tested on a incredibly regular basis and there would be medical professionals in and around the area to keep an eye on the players as well the the logistics of pulling this off are 100% impossible without many people getting sick and or dying and there's when you put it like that <laughs> there's no way that this actually happens but you know it, w- it wouldn't be rob manfred if it wasn't an idea that we were just kind of talking about without thinking about the repercussions yeah uh let's put aside the fact that 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 rob manfred saw that story about uh the the big brother germany contestants who hadn't found out that the rest of the world was going through global pandemic and was like, let's try that. Yeah. <laughs> let's put that aside for a sec. And I, I want to just ask you, would you enjoy watching this? Because you and I, 
we frequently on this podcast and off this podcast, we have qualms about enjoying the product that Major League Baseball is giving us amidst all of the bad that it's actively putting out into the world. And this is like, you just boil that down to its core form and this is just bad for the world. And so I'm asking you as a fan, if you could sort of like speak honestly about how you would be in internalizing the process of watching these games because i feel like i wouldn't not only would i have moral qualms about like what this means for the world and the the workers specifically who have to be there with these mlb players um and the players themselves of course who are their own labor force but i just don't know if it would be compelling baseball at the end of the day so what is what is the point like do i want to watch the mets win the asterisk world series no you imagine if that was the only World Series that the Mets won in my entire lifetime was the year that they played only in Arizona in front of no fans? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's just like my man Robbie Cano smoking a cigar six feet away from his closest teammate <laughs> celebrating solo <laughs> on Instagram Live. It's it's very sinister when you kind of start to think about like the implications for like the players and the coaches that would be a part of this. Um the the initial plan that was floated and the one that in in this scenario would seem most likely is that the players and the coaches and the all other employees of the teams that are there are separated from their families for the duration of the season really and it feels very much like trying to kind of extract as much as you can out of these people just for kind of our own entertainment and like put aside the fact that we already do that just on a day-to-day basis in society. That's kind of like what our just system is founded upon. It's just extraction of labor for our enjoyment, but like, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, I don't think that like I could sit there and watch it and be like, yes, I feel good about what we're putting these players through and the danger that this potentially poses and the medical supplies that are potentially being like diverted from people who actually need it just so that like I can get a little enjoyment. Like I, I don't think that you could in good conscience, like watch this and feel good about what's going on. I think that's right. I don't think there's even like a more nuanced take than that. I think the take is don't watch this if it happens. Yeah. Protest this if it happens. And there's no way that this happens. Like this is like they floated this and somehow, really somehow, it managed to be one of the more dumb things Rob Manfred has ever come up with. And well, if you're listening if you're listening to this podcast, you you know that he's got a he's got a whole <laughs> list of this. He's got a bunch of zingers in his back pocket. No, well, so this reads to me like, so you mentioned the Jeff Passan tweet and the article and whatnot. This came on the heels of all of the major sports commissioners meeting with President Trump and leading CDC experts and discussing what were some potential plans with which you could bring sports back with limited risk. Obviously, there's never going to be no risk anymore now that we understand this virus and how easily it can spread. And it's not going to be mitigated until you have like a reliable vaccine that the rest of the public trusts and everything. But th- this feels like Rob Manfred was the one commissioner that was stupid enough to listen to whatever Trump was saying on that phone call and be like, yeah, we, we, we might be able to do this thing. Like the rest of the commissioners notoriously didn't leak their plan to the media after this. Like you didn't hear Adam Silver giving out quotes about how the NDA 
might come back and play in an underground bunker with LeBron James playing Kawhi Leonard one-on-one for the title in hazmat suits. Rob Manfred was just the one guy that was like, yeah, I'm going to take President Trump at face value here. Imagine like getting off a call with all the sports commissioners in the U.S. and like Roger Goodell not coming out of that looking the stupidest. <laughs> Jesus. Or, or Gary Bettman, the NHL's commissioner, who's um, I think maybe equally as hated among their sports, but we just don't know anything about hockey. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, some to summarize, bad idea, bad commissioner, bad sport. Bad economic structure in capitalism. <laughs> Anything else? <laughs> um, I want to ask you, separate from this idea, but kind of related, is I know that we're all kind of looking for a sort of stopgap until we get real sports back. And there are all sorts of uh, things that are kind of popping up in place of that, whether you're going back and re-watching old games or you're playing your own but video bad games. Idea. Dumb yeah. idea. Yeah, I know. I don't know why anyone... I, I already know how the game's going to end. You don't need to tell me. <laughs> um, but there has been this contingent of baseball players who are getting together and playing MLB The Show together. And um, I'm curious what you think, Bobby. Would you watch that? Are you Are you interested in watching Major League Baseball players play video baseball games? Nope. <laughs> no <laughs> i'm not uh i want to be you know i want to like think that it's fun to watch pete alonzo play the show against whoever stroman or i'd rather just be playing you know like if it's a video i've never really enjoyed watching other people play video games um obviously the nba has leaned into this idea and they put on an official 2k tournament and um it's the highest rated esports television broadcast in the history of ESPN. I read that a couple of days ago, but this is not like it by any means any kind of silver bullet. I'm not against them putting it on TV or anything like that. Like, I think if people think that it's fun, you know, there's an entire cottage industry of, uh, of people playing video games on YouTube and just voicing over them and putting them up and, and like gaining millions of subscribers that way. But <laughs> there's just like an element of, uh, predictability and like none of it really matters anyway so I, I don't know what I would be getting out of it other than like I don't know what I would be getting out of it beyond like what I could get out of hearing if Pete Alonzo started a podcast you know you're basically just doing this to hear Pete Alonzo talk yeah and I think that like it's the kind of thing that only works if you have really compelling personalities playing the game and there are some really fun players doing this but like do I think that Blake Snell is an interesting enough person to fill three hours of game time with like just his dialogue. Uh, no disrespect to Blake Snell, but I think, yeah, I mean, I think like Blake Snell can be funny and I think Blake Snell is funny, but there's a reason that it's very hard and being in an MLB booth is very exclusive. It's hard to fill dead air of three hours. Imagine if we did three hour podcasts. Like every day or every week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What we're saying is Blake Snell, stick to esports, buddy. Just... <laughs> uh, we should probably mention at this point, we should probably mention that Gary Keith and Ron called the, the Mets broadcast booth, called a virtual simulate MLB the show simulated game of the Mets season. I think MLB the show is simulating like the entire season with all of the teams right now. And they're just like broadcasting that somewhere. And some of them are being called by MLB booths and uh, Gary Keith and Ron decided to hop on 
Periscope live on the SNY Twitter feed and, and call that game. And it was uh it was just delightful to hear them bantering with each other and very funny for like the, the 15 minutes that I decided to sit down and put it on in the background just to feel normal again. But I feel like after one broadcast or even after one hour, I would get kind of sick of the, them making jokes about how this is just a, <laughs> a virtual game that they're calling. Yeah. Yeah, I I sent it to you. Although I admit I didn't I didn't watch it because once again I'm I have very little interest in watching someone else play video games, let alone watch a computer play video games. Sorry. I think the real answer to this is that you and me just need to play each other in MLB The Show every day. We need All to right. find the A's schedule and play it out. What are you doing right now? <laughs> right now, uh, I am going to throw to a break. And then we're going to come back and talk about 2015 ALDS Game 5 between the Texas Rangers and the Toronto Blue Jays. We're now like 15 minutes into this podcast, but I'm going to do our fancy, uh, very professional for our unprofessional podcast intro. Uh, before we get into the summary and the discussion of this Tipping Pitches Classic, I am Bobby Wagner. I am Alex Basley. And this is Tipping Pitches. All right, Alex, as we start to talk about Game 5 of the 2015 ALDS between the Texas Rangers and the Toronto Blue Jays, I want you to keep one concept in your mind. The idea of the moments before the moment. Can you do that for me? I think so. Will you explain to me further what they are? I will give you a delineation of the moments before the moment. But just the idea that everything in baseball happens because of a very specific sequence of actions. So we all, we all know where this game is heading. Right. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably know why Alex and I chose this game. You know where it's going. And we all know the fallout from it for literal years afterwards. But as we talk about this game as a whole, I want you, Alex, and the listener to pay close attention to the very specific sequencing that led up to the moment that inspired us to pick this game. Because what makes a baseball game great, in my view, and also crushing in some instances isn't necessarily a strikeout to win Game 7 of the World Series. It's the warning track fly ball from the batter before that that gave each team's fan base a heart attack. It's not the ground ball up the first baseline that scores the winning run. It's the series of bloop singles that if the temperature that day or the wind or the composition of the maple in in the bat was slightly different, never would have made it to the outfield. And it's not the towering home run in this instance, even though it kind of is. It's the series of errors that will never let you forget that the home run could have been avoided. Anyway, as usual, I'm being verbose. So let's go to the game itself. And to take us there, here's Kenny Albert, Harold Reynolds, Tom Verducci, and Ken Rosenthal, a booth made in Alex and I's personal hell. And good afternoon, everybody. Kenny Albert, along with Harold Reynolds, Tom Verducci, and Ken Rosenthal. Win or go home. Winner of today's game will move on to the American League Championship Series. Win at home is something we have not yet seen in this series. The visiting team has won each of the first four games. So, Harold, the Blue Jays lose the first two at home here in Toronto, but down in Texas, their big bats came alive. Very rare in a game five you have this immense star power. You know, you look at the other side of Texas, Hamilton, Cole Hamill's going today. You got Prince. At the risk of overstating things, it's kind of profound to me what a difference four years makes. So, on the hill, we have Long Island legend Marcus Stroman versus Cole Hamill's. And it's pretty unanimously agreed upon that that favors the Rangers. I won't go quite as far as Tom Verducci in praising Hamels. Well, listen, if there was a factory somewhere where the Rangers could mail order a pitcher for this game, 
he would have the qualities that Cole Hamels has. There's a definite intangible quality bursting through the screen as you see Hamels on it. The Rangers had won 11 straight games in which he started since acquiring him at the trade deadline that year from the Phillies. And in this game, Cole is still sitting 95 with pinpoint precision. It's not like he was a Cy Young candidate or anything, but he threw 212 innings that year to the tune of 110 ERA+, plus, with about a strikeout per nine for the Phillies and Rangers combined. Meanwhile, Stroman was only in year two, which was really more like year 1.15 or so, because he tore his ACL in spring training in 2015 and only made four starts in the regular season. Four wins, by the way, with only five earned runs. Stroman tore his ACL on March 10th, tweeted, quote, the return will be legendary on March 12th, made his 2015 debut on September 12th, and on October 14th was on the bump to try to send the Blue Jays to their first ALCS since 1993. This is, this is a team that has David Price sitting in the dugout. David Price, who they had acquired literally at the deadline to do just this, show up in, in big games like this. Well, David Price pitched three innings of relief in game four. He did, yes. But could he have gone out there in game five? I think he could have gone out there in game five. Really? <laughs> Would have been questionable for his arm, which eventually melted anyway. Anyway, Marcus Stroman, ladies and gentlemen. He's that dude. Let's go to the top of the first where Delino De Shields is leading off for the Rangers. Delino, by year three of every franchise mode I ever played in MLB The Show 2015. I think that's my most vid- played video game ever, by the way. Delano De Shields was like a 40-20 guy with a 400 OBP for almost no reason. I know yeah. as well as anyone that the show is not real life, which we just talked about, even though it's the closest thing we have to baseball right now. But I'll never understand what happened to him in real life. <laughs> this, I love Delano De Shields. Just pure speed in a human body. This, this series between these two teams is just like remembering guys left and right. <laughs> left and right, literally. I'm like, wow, yeah, Prince Fielder playing baseball. I know. Ugh. Heartbreaking, heartbreaking stuff. And Hold Adrian, it. we got a long way to go in this pod. Please don't get me there yet. We have Adrian Beltre not long off from bat- retirement and still somehow in his prime. We have Josh Hamilton in his last appearance ever in the major leagues. He would he would make a, a couple ill fated uh, attempts at coming back, but this was really. This is it for him. So there's a there's a lot on the line for players on both sides of the field here. Yeah, more on Josh Hamilton later for sure. So DeShields doubles to start the game off. Shin Su Chu hits into a fielder's choice. Prince Fielder, who we're holding our tears for, hits into another fielder's choice. And DeShields scores to give the Rangers an early lead. I know I'm being a little deliberate right now, but I want to move half inning by half inning for a little while because a couple things really stuck out to me at the beginning of this game. First of all, it was moving really fast. Stroman and Hamels are both working really quickly on the mound, even though Stroh's pitch count is climbing quickly from the first pitch. The crowd is filling all the dead space that a pretty lackluster broadcast was leaving. <laughs> Second, the Blue Jays have Ben Revere hitting lefty-lefty leadoff against his old teammate Cole Hamels. I feel like I have such a false memory of Ben Revere. I really thought that he was always a low-average, defense-only outfielder that underachieved for the entire career, for his entire time with the Phillies. And maybe that's what he'll be remembered for after he kind of crashed out of the league in 2018. But from 2011 through 2015, Ben Revere hit 296 and stole 176 bases. He's like the quintessential leadoff hitter. And in this game, he's hitting leadoff for what is, I believe, and maybe statistics will back this up. I didn't have time to look it up. But what I believe is one of the best offenses of this decade. You got any Ben Revere takes for me? That's that's quite a statement on the 
on the Blue Jays lineup. One of the best offenses of this decade. That's a that's a take right there. I believe it. Do you remember what it was like to try to face this lineup? I mean, we'll talk about this later. <laughs> the Jays go quietly in the first, as do the Rangers in the top of the second, thanks to a Josh Hamilton walk and a failed sack bunt attempt from Elvis Andrews. Alex, we picked a fucking game from 2015 to try and avoid this dumb regressive baseball, yet still we're trying to sack bunt in the second inning of a division series clinching game against a team that could easily hang 10 runs on you. What is going on? And both teams would do this. Both teams. We have, we have multiple sack bunts in this game. Sack bunts on both sides. Sack bunts everywhere. I, I dream about sack bunts when I go to sleep at night. Inescapable stuff. This is what happens when you have two former catchers as managers. <laughs> So I've spoken about 800 words about this game and still haven't mentioned the crowd, which is maybe a disservice to the Toronto fans, but also maybe just me trying to keep my powder dry for all my thoughts about the Toronto fans that are going to come later in this summary. But I do have to mention that in the top of the second, Stroman gets his first strikeout of the game and the crowd erupts as if Joe Carter had just walked out to the mound and thrown out the first pitch. They are electric. They had signed a petition. They They had signed a petition. Tens of thousands of fans had signed a petition to open the roof for this game alone, just because they wanted that open air atmosphere and the team ultimately sided against it because they were like, it's fucking freezing out. If we open it, we may not be able to close it again. Well, actually, they mentioned on the broadcast that it wasn't the team that decided against it, that during the playoffs, it's Major League Baseball that gets to decide whether the roof is open or closed because they don't want Toronto to have a home field advantage by playing in the cold or being used to playing in the cold because like you said, it was 54 degrees on this evening. I hate when teams have home field advantage. Good thing that never happens anywhere else in baseball. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, back to the game. The Rangers tack on another run in the third, courtesy of a Shinsu Chu solo shot. Where did that come from? On one of the only four-seam fastballs that Stroman really threw in this game, the Jays answer back in the bottom of the third with a Jose Batista double off the wall that scores the aforementioned Revere. Both starters are kind of cruising at this point, though, and though they're not perfect, Stroman's stuff is on full display, and Cole Hamels is kind of rope-a-doping the Blue Jays into a lot of weak contact and some uncharacteristic strikeouts while caught lucking. 2015 soon-to-be MVP Josh Donaldson, what a trip seeing prime Josh Donaldson, hasn't been able to tee up on Hamels like he had in Game 2, and you're starting to get the feeling that the Jays' reliance on the home run just might have been subverted by a pitcher who has come up big in so many big moments. I want to take it on the side for a second here, Alex. So when I was watching this game, I kept thinking about how there's this idea in baseball that you're not supposed to press. Now, what do people mean when they say press? Well, you're not supposed to grip the, the bat too tight or grip the ball too tight. You're not supposed to let the pressure of the moments influence your bodily function at all. It's supposed to be all muscle memory and preparation. We talk about working on our craft. We talk about slow heartbeat, treating the game, treating the big moments like it's any other moment. You're supposed to stay within yourself. You hear coaches say all the same. You hear coaches say all the time. But this game kind of flies in the face of that idea because every single game, every single player in this game is pressing, save for maybe Cole Hamels and Adrian Beltre. Strowman looks turned up to 11 from the first pitch to the point where the broadcast is commenting on him, quote, pitching angry. Hamilton, Donaldson, Encarnacion, Bautista, Russell Martin, they're all swinging completely out of their shoes. To borrow a phrase from Top Gun, they're holding on to the wheel too tight. Can we talk about that for a second here? How every single player in this game is acting like they've never played in a big game before and maybe because they hadn't. Yeah, well, that's the thing is like, I, 
it feels like with a lot of the games we've talked about, you have players or teams that really feel like they have something to prove, right? And the I, I, this this is the Jays' first chance at really any sort of big playoff moment since '93, when Joe Carter hit the hit the walk off home run to to win the Jays the World Series, and the and the Rangers similarly, who had finished the year prior in last place and kind of come out of nowhere and cobbled this team together to make a run for the division. And I think they only ended up winning like 87 or 88 games this year. And so they really kind of stumbled their way into the playoffs. And it's this, these teams are kind of this weird blend of young talent and old stars that you don't necessarily associate with the teams that they're on at the moment. And Jose Batista is like right at, the center of that. This guy who has been cast off by literally like half the teams in baseball. Like four teams it, in one year. Wasn't it five? Oh, I, I, well, maybe. it was actually four teams in one year, but the same team twice. So technically five. <laughs> <laughs> Started on the Pirates and ended up back on the Pirates. <laughs> First player to to do that. And so these guys are all playing for something, right? Because like so few of them have ever really been on this stage before. And especially in a city that hasn't seen playoff baseball in in such a long time. Like this is this is a moment to behold, that's for sure. Nobody is cool. Like nobody is playing it cool. Let's just rewind for a second, talk about the last few games that you and I have discussed over the last month of this podcast. 91, Jack Morris and John Smoltz are as cool as it can be. Right? 95. Edgar is one of the most composed hitters that I've ever watched. And we we talked in that podcast about Ken Griffey Jr. hitting the home run and not even celebrating because he was so calm and collected. And then last week in 86, like, you know, maybe you look on the Mets side and everybody's pressing a lot, but Clemens seems completely composed and absolutely within himself. And so this is like, I think one of the first games that there was like a, a true to the core of the baseball that I know, sense of anxiety in the stands, on the f- in, in the stands, in the dugout, and especially on the field. Like, these players seem stressed out to me. Yeah, they do, but they also seem like they're handling it very differently because the Blue Jays are playing perfect baseball. It, it kind of gets lost in the discussion about the, the seventh inning of this game and everything that came after it, but... There are some really incredible and really crucial plays from the Blue Jays' defense that are the reason that they make it out of this series alive, right? You have Kevin Pillar robbing Josh Hamilton uh, of a hit with a diving catch in the fourth. You have Ryan Goins with a run-saving sliding play up the middle in the sixth that keeps the Blue Jays within one run. It's a you good have, thing he made that play because he didn't do a whole lot else in the series. Well, I, sometimes that's all you need, right? And sometimes <laughs> it just takes one sliding play to save a run, and that's the that's the difference maker. Donaldson himself, pressing as he was, makes an incredible barehanded play in the in like the sixth or the seventh. The blue the Blue Jays are pressing, and yet they're playing incredibly fundamentally pristine baseball. And the Rangers, as we'll get to, uh, are not. are doing less than that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we've put it off long enough. Let's go to the seventh. But right before the seventh, a genuinely relentless Jays offense has tied the game on an Edwin Encarnacion absolute no 
doubter. Hamels, who was pitching next to perfectly, is now looking at a no decision. The game is tied 2-2. Give an inch, take a mile, etc., etc. So we're on to the seventh, where the broadcast opens up on a shot of Jays fans returning to their seats, beers in hands. How fitting. Remember what I said about paying attention to the moments before the moments? I Here do we remember go. that, yeah. That was actually a moment before this moment. <laughs> Stroman, pitch count climbing in only his sixth appearance of 2015. Can't go any longer. In comes the hard-throwing Aaron Sanchez out of the bullpen to face 8-9-1 and one in the Rangers lineup. Rugnet Odor singles to left on a straight four-seamer. Rangers catcher Chris Jimenez sacked Bunce Odor over to second. Side note, Kenny Albert goes to a live read for Amazon Web Series. A fun game to play with any sports broadcast after like 2011 is how long before someone says the name Amazon. <laughs> this is like, this is when like StatCast like first kind of starts getting incorporated into broadcast and broadcasters don't really quite know how to do it. And so like on the Pilar catch in the fourth, like <laughs> they do the StatCast analysis of it and it's just like he covered 93 feet to make this catch. And you're like, Cool. Thanks, Amazon Web Services. (laughs) And then Tom Verducci is like, great catch. Okay. (laughs) Delano to Shields grounds out weekly to left, where Donaldson has to charge to make a stellar play to get the out. This is the play that you were talking about just just a couple minutes ago. But Rugnet Odor advances to third behind him. Shinsu Chu steps into the box. Two outs. Top of the seventh. And this is the moment when we cease watching a Major League Baseball game and we start watching a neighborhood wiffle ball game. That the the Josh Donaldson play is like the the last normal thing about this baseball <laughs> game. game. It's really yeah. it's really incredible to watch it because you're like, well, nothing else will be the same after this. <laughs> Chu fouls off the first pitch. He takes the second pitch for a ball. He fouls off the third pitch. Then Sanchez, up in the count, power pitcher getting a, a boost on his stuff by coming out of the bullpen, has him exactly where he wants him. He's going to waste one high and try to get Chu to chase. Chu doesn't budge, so the count evens up at 2-2. Two to two. But as Blue Jays catcher and former Gold Glove winner, savvy veteran Russell Martin goes to throw the ball back. It ricochets off the bat, off Chu, and squirts away into foul territory down the third baseline. Look at this. Ball's dead. Dead ball. The ball actually hit Chu's bat as Martin went to throw it back to the pitcher. Why is it dead? Why is it dead? That ball's alive. Now Dale Scott signaled immediately. That ball's alive. Unless he thought that Chu crossed over the plate. No, what Chu's doing, just getting ready. He's just getting ready to hit again. He's just stand there getting ready Odor, to who's on third base at this time, not entirely sure of what was going on, decided that he saw a live ball and would sprint for home. He crosses home as the home plate ump is waving the ball dead. And now we're in the very unique hell that is everyone standing around arguing about a rule that they're not even sure that they understand. Enough with the summary for a second, Alex. Let's just come out and talk about this. Like two normal baseball fans who are watching this baseball game together because that's what we were. That's what you and I sitting in our college newspaper office, putting off the work that we actually had to do, sitting cross-legged on the table, watching this game and just losing our fucking minds. You're right that we were putting off our work by doing this, but like a stroke from the baseball gods made it valid that we were putting off our work because we were watching this game kind of 
alongside what we were doing. And then, blessedly, Google Docs, which is the, the system that we use to run our entire college newspaper, just went out for a couple hours. And so you and I were just sitting there, like you said, cross-legged, sitting on top of the desks of our college newspaper, just watching this game side by side and not being able to continue our work. Like no one could yell at us. Our bosses couldn't be like, why haven't you edited this story? We could just be like, Google Docs is down. Shut up. We're watching <laughs> <laughs> We're watching this insane game. I think even like at the beginning of this game, I wasn't watching for the first couple innings because I was editing and you had it up on your laptop on because you had at bat or whatever. And um you just at one point you just called me over and you were like, dude, it's you've time. Got this inning. <laughs> this inning. We have to watch this inning. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, things deteriorate from here. And and the the ball off ricocheting off the bat is like this really it's one of these weird moments that I feel like the moment as a, before the moment. It it is the moment before the moment, but it also is a moment in and of itself, right? Because like it's the moment in which John Gibbons decides to play the game under protest, right? Because they decide that it's a live ball. And what John is that? Gibbons, who is like completely straight faced throughout this whole thing, is just like, yep, we're playing this game under protest. And the yeah. umpire's like, okay. And then yes. John Gibbons just turns around and walks back into the fucking dugout without yelling or doing anything. He's not even mad. He's just like, it is, it is what it is, Alex. We're playing this game under protest. Yeah. Yeah. This, I do want to talk in a little bit kind of about how the, how much this game represents like the sport that would come in the following years but but even just in this shinshu in this shinsu chu moment alone like the idea of like the game being stopped so that everyone can check on the rule book feels like <laughs> it feels like this thing that just happens like so much has happened so much more often in like the last 10 years or so like whether it's with the uh, the Braves Cardinals game playoff game infield fly rule in 2011, right? Or going back, we've had it feels like we've had a myriad of them in the last couple years, and it feels like so ripe for this moment to just like let's just let's just get a rule check right here. Let's stop the game. Let's get all the umpires together so they can collectively call the commissioner and be like, "Hey, boss, what's uh what is what's the actual <laughs> rule in this situation?" Well. I, I do want to save sort of the replay review conversation for a little later after we're we're done talking through the events of the game. But if you view the rest of baseball since this moment through the lens of this game, it's like every time someone slightly pops off the bag and we go to review for 10 minutes or there's a 15 minute delay in the middle of one of the of some of the most exciting games of our generation of baseball. That's just that's what it is now, man. It's like it reminds me of like how NASA before we had like reliable computers and calculators, like sending a rocket to the moon required someone sitting down for like six straight weeks and doing long division and then having someone else check it for six straight weeks. Like that was just how we sent rockets to the moon. Like this game is decided on towering massive home runs hit by two of the best power hitters of the baseball season this year. But it's also decided on like umpires standing around with headsets checking the, the verbiage of the rule book. And so it's just like this duality of what of of impressive athletic feats with stupid strategy and and rules and and quirks and it's just like that is what those are the sort of the competing forces of baseball for better or for worse. Yeah. And 
And the chew moment is certainly not the last time that we will have some rule checks in this game. <laughs> in this so, inning, even. We should say, after the ball ricochets off Chu's bat, Odor comes, out, comes down to score. The umpire waves it off, sends Odor back to third base. Then Jeff Bannister, the Texas Rangers manager, comes out and he's like, well, why did you wave that off? What's the application of what application of what rule says that you're waving that off? And yeah, why is the ball dead there? And the broadcast is talking about how the ball should only be dead if Chu interfered with Russell Martin as he's throwing the ball back to Aaron Sanchez. Yeah, on and purpose. On purpose, right. Or if he's over the plate, out of the box. Whether it's on purpose or not, if he's outside the batter's box, then it's interference. But you show the replay, and boy, oh boy, did they show the replay maybe a hundred times. I should yeah. have counted, yeah. but at least 50 times we saw this replay. And every single time, it just looks like Chu is just going through his routine of stretching his arm out and getting back into his spot in the box. He doesn't leave the box at all. He's not over the plate. His arm isn't even outside of the batter's box. Russell Martin just, he just fucked it up, dude. He just botched it. There's no other way to say it. He just, he just wasn't paying attention and just went off. And you can't even blame Russell Martin for this, but he just lost focus on throwing the ball back to Sanchez and it went off Chu's bat. This is like one of those weird moments in baseball where like you never expect this thing to happen. And then when it ultimately happens, somehow Major League Baseball actually has a rule for this. Like Ken Rosenthal <laughs> will will later on in the inning come back and read the text of the rule that was uh, applied in applies this, to this exact And it applies situation. to the, it's like down to the letter. I'm like, how did they foresee this? I know. We talk a lot about how, how about Major League Baseball's like, glorious shortcomings but then also like how much worse would we be at trying to write a rule book for like stupid events like this yeah yeah we'd be terrible so and here's where i get mad this play is not reviewable it should that they shouldn't have gone to replay because it's a judgment call by the umpire and they came together after this before going to replay, the umpires met together after Jeff Bannister came out and, and questioned the enforcement of the rule. And they met, and I don't know which one of them was the crew chief. I don't think it was the home plate umpire, but they decided that the rule was incorrectly enforced and that Chu was not intentionally trying to interfere with Russell Martin as he's throwing the ball back to the plate. So while unfortunate and dumb and stupid and silly and like I said like a neighborhood wiffle ball game where you're arguing over what's Bush League and what the rules should be in this instance the run has to score so they come back after meet after all the umpires meet and they send Odor back home so then John Gibbons comes out and like you referenced earlier lets them know that he'd like to protest the enforcement of this rule and he wants them to review it or he wants them to call back to Secaucus or wherever in the New York, New Jersey area you actually call to when you go to replay review Manhattan, Fifth Avenue, I don't care he called Rob Manfred's personal cell phone and was like, Rob, what do I do? and so they go to replay review now the broadcast is mentioning that they're not actually reviewing the play they're asking for a clarification on what the rule actually is, like the umpires are like I want to make sure that the letter of this rule is being applied correctly. So they're not asking MLB replay 
to change the decision about whether or not Chu was in the way, but they just want to know that they they were applying the rule correctly. But the replay review lasts like 15 minutes, and I guarantee you, if Chu had like actually reached out over the plate and interfered with Russell Martin, they would have somehow overturned the judgment call. I don't know how, but they would have found a way to do it. Do you, do you agree with that? Am I making sense? Wait, so do you think that the umpire's ultimately made the right call here because like they the the umpire the the home plate umpire calls it dead and then pretty much immediately they they gather with the the umpires gather together and they're like all right fuck what do we do here and after the game the home plate umpire whose name i'm now drawing a blank on came out and said he pretty much immediately after he waved his hands to call the ball dead he realized like he probably he shouldn't, shouldn't, have shouldn't have done that. He's like, wait, hang on. Like, and I understand why he did, because that's one of those things that like it happens so rarely that you're just kind of not really prepared for it. So you just kind of like wave your hand and say, wait, everybody stop, go back to where you were before. <laughs> and Freeze. so, yeah. So like the, the umpires getting together and saying, we should probably check on what the letter of the rule is before deciding on how we rule this like is an okay thing for me although the 15 minute replay review obviously is not that's where it frustrates me because they got together they met and then they made the right call together and then they were like wait let's check our work it should have never gone to replay it's not a replay eligible play that's where i get frustrated by it yes they made the right call this was completely the right call no matter how unfortunate it was for the Blue Jays, no matter how angry the fans were, and the fans were mad. While while the 15-minute replay review was going on, while the umpires were meeting, this is when, like I mentioned before, fans start throwing shit on the field. They're throwing trash. They're throwing beer cans. It's getting really legitimately out of hand. But yeah, they made the right call. I'm just saying, we've now, like, so, we've interrupted the flow of the game so much that, like, I'm not even really sure we're playing baseball anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, how do you resume from this? How do we just like go back and pretend like that they should just throw the next pitch? <laughs> and then they do come back after they point Odor back and he goes and scores and they're playing the game under protest, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They do come back. Sanchez throws a strike that Chu fouls off and then Sanchez throws a nasty sinker that Chu strikes out on and the inning is somehow over and we're That's going it. to the bottom of the seventh. <laughs> Just like that, we're like we're right back in it. I'm just saying, like, I really feel like they sort of botched. It, it shouldn't have taken so long, the review, which shouldn't have happened in the first place. But if it is going to happen, if the umpires do feel like they need to call to Fifth Avenue and and get them to confirm that they're applying the rules correctly, because playing a playoff game under protest and then going back and replaying is a disaster. You can't do that. I just feel like. They should have been ready to be like, yes, the rule was done correctly. Back in. Go. Go. Do not do not waste 20 minutes. You would think that, like, obviously, like, replay review in the middle of the season is different because there are so many games going on. But you would think that in the postseason, there would be, like, one or two or three or however many people watching the game who know the rule book. Right. Or at least like know generally where this rule might be. <laughs> like watching They're each like game. Command S. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Ball hits batter on throwback to pitcher. You know, like it's not that hard. I I don't know. One would think that yeah, they'd be a little more prepared for this situation. 
our our naivety in thinking that the weirdness was over once we went to the bottom of the seventh. At this point, you and I were just in like stunned silence. Like we were having basically the same conversation that you and I are having right now. Like what is going on? <laughs> it's hard to overstate how long. I mean, even if you go on back and watch it now, it still feels long. Like this was an 18 minute delay in play. And me knowing what happened and I had actually just rewatched just this inning for a little blurb that I was writing for the ringer like a month ago. So I like got up like this time watching it for this podcast. I like got up and and went and like did some dishes and like came back, got made myself a drink like in the, in the time in the downtime and came back and they're still arguing about the application of this rule. I like that you were like watching a replay of this game. And instead of fast forwarding through the 18 minute part, you were like, I'll just let this play out and see how it goes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Let's go to the bottom of the seventh. Russell Martin is up to bat because of fucking course. Russell Martin is up to bat first. He's the current goat because of throwing the ball off Shinsu Chu's bat. And he hits a routine grounder up the middle to Elvis Andrews, who boots it just as ba- just about as bad as a major league shortstop is ever going to boot a routine ground ball. It's just right in his glove, right off the heel. I, yeah. I, I don't understand. Elvis Andrews, very reliable fielder up until this point and since this point. But for the bottom of the seventh inning... In Oct- on October 14th, 2015, Elvis Andrews turned into, like, me. <laughs> yeah. Elvis Andrews, who, like, up, like, to this point, like, is one of the more notable Texas Rangers, just kind of, like, in their recent history. And up to, like, this point now, in 2020, is, like, one of the best players one of the best position players, certainly, that the Rangers have ever had. And, like, looking at the end, if you, like, assume he's going to stay with the Rangers until the end of his contract, you can foresee a place where he's, like, a top five all-time Ranger, just as far as, like, games played in a Rangers uniform. This is the guy who is beloved by the fan base. And yet, and yet, so much of his career can be easily boiled down to two plays in the bottom of the seventh inning in a game against the Blue Jays. And I just want to give him a hug. I know. So Kevin Pollard steps to the plate with Harold Reynolds is absolutely thirsting over him on the broadcast for God only knows why. I'm going to play a close with that right here. Tell you, there's a lot of guys that have really played well and their stock has gone through the roof. Nobody more than this guy. He's been so impressive. Yeah, I agree, and that's why from the get-go, that's why he swings the bat. Toronto doesn't really play to manufacture runs, but he's been one of their hotter sticks in the lineup. We've watched him have some power. We've shown the speed, the great defense, throw. He's done it all in the four and almost five games now in this series. He hits a weak rounder to first base for Rangers first baseman Mitch Moreland fields it cleanly. Moreland goes to second to get Martin the lead runner, but absolutely shanks the throw, spiking it straight into the ground about five feet ahead of Elvis Andrews, who can't field the throw. Everyone is safe, and then nine-hitter Ryan Gowen steps into the box with nothing but sack, sack bunt on his mind. He gets the bunt down. Adrian Beltre fields it cleanly. They have a wheel play put on. He turns to third to try to nail Martin as the lead runner again. Fires a perfect throw to Andrews, who is covering, who 
who just flat out drops it. Just drops it, man. It hit him right in the glove, and he dropped it. Alex, have you ever seen anything like this? No, but I've been there, man. I remember very vividly one or two times on my high school team. I remember there is one moment in particular that I can remember where it's like bases loaded, pivotal moment, two outs, bunt is laid down, and I run over from, from second base, and the pitcher throws me the ball, and I just fucking drop it. And I felt oh, miserable. No. And I cannot even imagine what Elvis Andrus is feeling in this moment right now. All my most crushing baseball moments come from like, four pitch walks with the bases loaded and like very pivotal <laughs> moments like never anything quite as like unfortunate as this was because this is just it's just a downer man it's because like he drops that ball once out of every million times and this was the one time because of course it was because this game was just off the rails completely now with the bases loaded no outs it's 3-2 Rangers still leadoff hitter Ben Revere grounds into a fielder's choice they finally roll the rock up the goddamn mountain and it stays martin is out as the lead runner dalton pompey coming home from third who is forced out at the plate makes a great slide to take out rangers catcher chris jimenez that once again (laughs) (laughs) leads to a checking of the rules a reviewing of the replay yeah and this one was specifically like important in this moment because this came right just days after the takeout side at second base, Chase Utley's takeout side of Ruben Tejada in the NLDS between the Mets and the Dodgers. So takeout sides were really on the mind in this moment. And um, you hear Harold Reynolds on the broadcast talking about how recent rule changes of the last five years have made it so that the catcher is the most protected player in the infield in these, in these situations. And obviously because of Buster Posey breaking his leg um, at, in a collision at the plate. And so you're kind of thinking like baseball, Murphy's Law, like the stupidest thing is always going to happen. And so they're going to call it a double play and they're going to call him out for the takeout side. But they don't do that. And I think partially because Toronto would have set on fire if they did that. It, yeah, it. Yes, it would have. <laughs> Now, keep in mind, Cole Hamels is still in through all of this. He is still on the mound. He hasn't done anything wrong. The ball hasn't left the infield. So Josh Donaldson steps to the plate and hits one of the weakest seeing eye bloom singles over Rugnetto Doris' head, which he should have caught, by the way, but he read the, the spin wrong off the bat. Ben Revere, thinking that Odor was going to catch it and he'd have to tag, is thrown out at second base right as Kevin Pillar comes in to score and tie the game. Now, Josh Donaldson, this one got in on his hands and he just kind of muscled it out over this, over Rugnetador's head at second base. And so the Blue Jays have made weak contact four times. They've bunted once. The ball has only just barely left the infield on a Josh Donaldson bloop. And they've somehow managed to tie this game with the help of the Rangers. So let's get this straight now. Let's get situated. We have Ryan Goins on third, Josh Donaldson on first. Tie game 3-3. Hamels is finally pulled in favor of Sam Dyson, who in 2015 is one of the best relievers in baseball. And in steps Jose Bautista. Donaldson driving in the tie run on a fielder's choice. After the Rangers took the lead in bizarre fashion in the top half. The 1-1 from Dyson. Bautista with a drive. 
this is obviously one of the most incredible moments, I think, just in baseball history in the last, like, 10 to 15 to 50 years. No words can do justice to the home run or the ensuing bat flip that would come from Jose Batista. But I think the thing that really stuck out most to me in this is like, you know, you were talking about the moments before the moments coming into this, uh, this discussion. And (laughs) there was brief discussion of that. And I think you, while the Jose Batista home run is the thing that kind of makes it out of this game, that's the like one iconic image that, that you always come back to. Like there are so many other just absolutely mind boggling earth shattering moments that like had to take place for like Jose Batista to be in this place at this time. And there are so many other like moments that like feel like they have equal gravity to them. Like the Edwin Encarnacion home run felt almost as like earth shattering as the Batista one. It just happened to come like a couple innings earlier, right? Yeah, like one inning earlier, like an hour and a half, but only one inning. Earlier. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. So, like, it's really, I feel like the the shadow of the Batista home run is so big that it obscures all the other just like batshit crazy stuff that happens. It's incredible. Jose Batista hit 40 home runs in 2015. And 40 home runs doesn't like, we're in the era of a ton of home runs. We're in the era of the juice ball. We're in the era of swing plane. You know, we're in the era of guys trying for three true outcomes. But to think about Jose Bautista reinventing himself as a guy who was going to hit 250 and hit for just all power amidst a lineup that was like completely contingent on power with those three guys, Josh Donaldson, Jose Batista, and Edwin Encarnacion combining for 120 home runs and over 300 RBIs that year. It just, it would never ever happen in any other era. Like the, the idea that Batista would be this journeyman guy who would come in and reinvent himself as some as himself as someone who is just like a devastating to face power hitter against Sam Dyson who's throwing like 98 sinkers with movement arm side movement and to that point in the year had like a sub 2 ERA and was striking out everyone like that Jose Bautista strikes out in every other era of baseball except the current one that we're living in and for him to homer in this moment, not even just like, because, you know, the crowd would have went crazy if it was a single. The crowd would have went crazy if it was a double off the wall. The crowd would have went crazy if he walked, you know, like it, it wouldn't have even mattered. But we're just so blessed to have had this moment from this guy. And then obviously, of course, we haven't even talked about it. But to get that reaction, which came so naturally, because it's not like Jose Batista has been like the most outspoken flagrant bat flipper since or before this moment he like i said he got cut by four teams one team twice in the same year he had no business being a showboating large personality before all of this but then he hits this home run 
and it's just like he gets caught up in the in the emotion of the moment and he does the exact right thing by launching his bat. It's not lost on me like how many things had to go right for us to to be allowed to watch this moment. Yeah. Yeah, he is not flipping his bat to show up Sam Dyson or the Texas Rangers. He is flipping his bat to show up every single obstacle that said that he should not have been standing there in that moment. And he was, and he rose to that occasion. Can I, can I talk about the actual home run for a sec? He just tattooed that man. Yeah. Like <laughs> it was just middle in and he got, hit, he got around on it quick. And Kenny Alberson really nailed that call. And I thought that the broadcast was like really up and down throughout this game. Like I thought that they were informative at moments and, I thought that that Harold Reynolds was actually like kind of useful and helpful at times, but for the most part, it was like kind of choppy and and hard to follow. But in this specific moment, just the crowd kind of erupting like a jet engine, and Albertson kind of like meeting meeting that moment. I I don't know. It just still gives me chills to watch it. So then the rest of the seventh inning, it kind of felt real. Like you weren't sure what just happened, and the fans are still going crazy. They're throwing shit on the field still. For this, for the second time in the <laughs> inning, it's yeah. like, y'all, for, take for, a breath. For good reason this time. Like, how many beers that these people just have, like, sitting in front of them that they could just throw multiple on the field in the same inning? I, I don't know. But, you know, they're, the game is is held up because when Edwin Encarnacion comes back out, the fans are going insane and they're asking for a curtain call and they're throwing stuff on the field, and Bautista comes out for the curtain call or whatever, but our Encarnacion's trying to calm everyone down, and he good, takes his helmet guy, off. Good Edwin. Oh, my God. Just trying to play the peacekeeper. That's all he wanted to do. And he takes his helmet off, and he's trying to calm everyone down, and then, for some reason, Sam Dyson takes exception to Edwin Encarnacion trying to calm everyone down because he thinks that he's trying to hype everyone up still, and he comes over and gets in Encarnacion's face, and then the bench is clear. <laughs> So we have another 10 minute delay as the benches have to return to where they were. And all in all, nothing else happens in the inning, but it was just like the whole world paused for like a couple batters and like 20 more minutes just for us to like linger and think about what had just happened. Yeah. I think that one of the defining images for me from this inning or or at least one of the things that really crystallized itself in my mind is like the cameras shaking following the home run that's i i love that aspect of a broadcast because you have the cameras in the outfield or wherever they are and the stadium batisa hits the home run and the stadium is shaking and so are the fucking cameras. And it makes you feel like you are like sitting there in the middle of the earthquake as the cameras pan to Cole Hamels. And it's just, you can't, you literally cannot see a thing, right? Because the camera is bouncing up and down so much. But it feels like this There's moment. Like food flying across the shot. Yeah, ex- exactly. It's It doesn't feel like this like polished like business production it's just like pure insanity that even these like professional camera operators cannot properly capture like the the gravity of the moment and in being so unable to like zoom out and like steady their camera that like speaks perfectly to just how everything was going down right then 
frequently on a broadcast, like I, I think there's probably like a six second delay or a seven second delay or whatever, where the announcers get the feed slightly before you so that what they're calling lines up as opposed to what they're calling happens like right after what you're watching on TV. But for some reason with this home run, you hear the crowd reaction like before Kenny Alberts even starts the call. Like it's just the crack of the bat and then the roar and then like a one second downbeat and then Kenny Alberts' call. And I just like, it just reiterates to me how on their toes and how into this game every single member of the crowd was. Like there was no, it just felt like a real crowd to me. And I don't even know what that means, but it just like, there was no like corporateness to it. There was no like, these seats are really expensive to it. It was like, this is the first time they have the chance to go to the ALCS since 1993. And the whole city of Toronto showed out and they showed their asses at moments in this game. But like they were going to tear the roof off of that place. If anything went right for them and it went really, really right for them and they did not disappoint. Yeah. They said, all right, major league baseball, you won't let us open up the roof to the Rogers center. Like then we'll tear this place to the ground. We're fine with that too. All right, Alex. So that is the end of the scoring for this game. TRT, total runtime for this inning, Alex. 53 minutes. So let me tie up some some loose ends and then we'll get into some questions. Aaron Sanchez comes back out for the eighth. He gets one out and puts two on base and in comes rookie reliever Roberto Osuna. He strikes out Josh Hamilton and Elvis Andrews, both swinging to keep the Jays lead at 6-3. Then the Jays do nothing in the bottom of the eighth. In the top of the ninth, to send the Jays to their first ALCS since 1993. Osuna gets Odor to line out before overpowering Mike Napoli and Will Venable to get back-to-back strikeouts to end the game. Five batters faced four strikeouts for Roberto Osuna in his first year in baseball, by the way. Really tough. Tough to go back and watch rookie Roberto Osuna end this otherwise incredible game to watch. Did we miss anything? We probably missed a bunch of things because every moment of this game informs the rest of it. Like, like we said, it's all the moment. Well, in this game specifically, it's all about the moments before the moments, but did I miss anything big that you had noted down? Incredibly? No, I think that, I think that we hit on the biggest, most pivotal moments for this game. And I, I, and I do want to kind of talk about just the, the legacy of this game and what it came to, to represent, but it, it feels like those, yeah, the, the small moments that we we have talked about created something so much bigger than the sum of their parts. Okay, can I run down a few questions that I had written down throughout this game? Let's go. Let's do it. Who do you think was the biggest irritant in this game? Like, if we're playing a game of Clue, is it Jose Batista at home plate with the bat flip, or is it someone else? <laughs> here, here are a couple nominees for you. We got Batista, like I said. We got Rugi Odor. We got Aaron Sanchez, who for some reason like screams at the top of his lungs at Shin Chu after he strikes him out. We got the Blue Jays fans. Or we have my personal pick, Sam Dyson. We failed to mention, oh, we did fail to mention something. We failed to mention that at the end of the bottom of the seventh, Sam Dyson gets Troy Tulowitzki to pop out to the catcher. And as he's walking off the field, he decides it's a good idea to walk directly past Troy Tulowitzki and slap him on the butt. And then the bench is cleared again. So the inning continued on beyond 15, 53 minutes. Twice for no reason. Who is the biggest irritant? When you say irritant, 
to find <laughs> define for me what you mean by that in this context. Who is like the catalyst for why this game devolved, I guess? Because what we were watching was no longer baseball for like an hour and 10 minutes. Why? Who Who is most to blame for that? Well, unfortunately, it's Elvis Andrus, but we won't <laughs> go down that road. <laughs> um, that road is already well-traveled by it, us. Yeah, it really is. Uh, the, the easy, most obvious answer is Jose Bautista, although his was kind of the the thing that capped all of this off. And he wasn't really the one that started any of this. He just kind of ended it in the way that, that it really needed to be ended. I think that like the, the like sleeper pick is like MLB and it's rule book that kind of like threw this whole thing off its, off its axis and was like the reason that fans were throwing things on the fields at various points and as as well as like its unwritten rule book, which is the very reason that like beef between these teams like coalesced and the reason that the bench is cleared twice, right? Is like all because of a stupid bat flip. So like this, I think that like the way the game and the system is all set up, like this was going, things were all going to break like at the same time at one point or another. And we were just like lucky enough to have it be kind of in this instance, you know? Did it make you sad to see Josh Donaldson so heavily featured in this game in the year that obviously Donaldson was incredible? He won and was very deserving of the AL MVP. Um, is he the one that got away? The most recent one that got away? I'm okay at not having Josh Donaldson on my team. I don't know if you've heard of our our current third baseman at the moment. His name's Matt <laughs> Chapman. Um <laughs> And he's yeah. decent as well. Also, like, just I look at Josh Donaldson. You want to talk like, punchable fuck faces? That guy. Yeah, <laughs> fuck that guy. But like, incredibly fun to to watch play baseball. So, what are you going to do? That's the the moral quandary of watching baseball in 2020. Remember when he could only get a one year contract last year? That was weird. Jesus Christ! Yeah, three years removed from his MVP season. Um. I want to do a let's do a brief two minutes about Troy Tulowitzki, who I've never been a fan of and who I think sucked in this game. And frankly, this was his last good year. Wow. What, what more can dirt you on even the grave say of, on the guy? <laughs> welcome to the throwing dirt on the grave of Troy Tulowitzki hour. Why? Why have you never been a fan of his? Tell me air, just, air your grievances right now. All right. So played for his first whatever, eight years in Colorado. Obviously, that comes with a slight demotion of his statistics because of course field whatever i don't i care less about that i'm a big fan of nolan arenado everybody tries to tell me that arenado is overrated because he plays in course field whatever i just never was impressed by him in the playoffs i was never impressed by him on defense frankly like he, he it was like a little bit jittery where he like didn't he made a couple plays where he was ranging to his right and like a couple of nice throws and everybody was like oh this guy and like he he was just bad in this game. Like he <laughs> he made a throwing Don't he made in a, on him. <laughs> he made a really bad throwing error for no reason. Like he tried to throw it 110 miles an hour spinning around at at second base on an attempted double play. To end the seventh inning, he had a weak pop up. And I just I, I don't know. Not a fan. I'm not a fan. Everybody tried to make Troy Tulowitzki happen. Like everybody tried to make fetch happen in Mean Girls, and it just it's not doing it for me, dude. <laughs> 
I my take on Troy Tulowitzki is like parallel to that in that he really w- never was as good as I think people said he was or that he could have been. And most of that is due to the tragedy of just like being truly unable to stay healthy. I mean, Troy Tulowitzki is like one of those players. Yeah. I think that like the the trope of like players who are like quote unquote like injury risks or injury prone or whatever is I think a little overblown. Um I think a lot of a lot of players who like get hurt a lot, it's not that their bodies aren't suited for it. It's just like shit happens. But like Troy Tulowitzki is just like one of those things you just absolutely cannot explain why he was never able to stay healthy. And ultimately I think it's like more of a sad story than anything else because he very well could have been that like franchise cornerstone type guy for the Rockies. And he was for a long time. And then it just like, sometimes your body just decides not to work anymore. So uh, now I'm just kind of psychoanalyzing myself and, and perhaps the reason that I was frustrated in this specific game and in this specific year with Tula whiskey was because if you remember, there was like kind of a little bit of a rumor about the Mets maybe going after Tulo in 2015 because he had just gotten traded to the Jays this year. And when he got traded to the Jays, everybody was like, this is the trade that's going to win the Jays the World Series. Because they were having a really good year. They were obviously all in. They traded for David Price that year, who you mentioned previously. Stroman was back up after his injury. And they traded for Tula Whiskey. And those are, those are like two pretty huge blockbuster trades for a Toronto Blue Jays team who has to compete in the AL East with big spenders in the Yankees and the Red Sox. And I was just kind of like, nah. Like, the Mets didn't get Tulowitzki, and as soon as they were out on Tulowitzki, I was excited about him coming to the Mets, not going to lie. But as soon as they, because the Mets shortstop that year was fucking Ruben Tejada. As soon as he went to the Jays and, like, was not that great for the rest of the year, I was like, you know what? I'm going to retroactively correct my take and that I didn't want him to come to the Mets, and this would have been a waste of money, and he would have been bad for the next three years. <laughs> Justice for Troy Tulowitzki. That's what we're saying. Whatever. Um... Did instant replay partially ruin this game for you? Yes. And that's kind of, I think, what I was, like, getting at with, like, the Batista home run is, like, that's the thing that makes it out. But you go back and watch this game, and parts of it are just excruciating to watch. And I think in the moment when, like, the adrenaline is running and you have no clue what you're watching, it's easy to not necessarily overlook that, but just to be, like, so kind of overwhelmed by it all that a 10 or 15 minute instant replay like you're almost just kind of like fuck it i want to see where this goes you know but like watching back it's like (laughs) it's oh it's so hard sometimes to just be like how did we how did we let major league baseball get away with this how are we (laughs) continuing to let them get away with this yeah like 2064's version of tipping pitches is going to be going back and watching old baseball games and it's going to be like how was there not a 15 second limit on replay review? Once they figure out how to put a limit on replay review, like people, fans of the future are going to be like, how did they ever watch this shit, dude? Baseball will be broadcasting on like TikTok by then, but whatever. <laughs> um, I have a few more questions, but I want to open it up to you. Is there anything that you wanted to, to float to listeners, wanted to float to me that you were that was ruminating for you while you were watching this? 
I just felt like this game checked like all of the boxes of what it felt like to watch baseball in 2015 or or 2020, even for that matter. I mean, literally, like as I was watching it, I would just like write down and be like, "Yep, yeah, we checked that box. Yep, we got we got that in here." It's like like playing bingo of of modern day baseball. You have like you have incredible plays with real stunning like outwardly expressive shows of emotion that like get you wrapped up in the game that is marred by replay reviews and constant checking of the rules and subsequent anger over unwritten rules that were broken during this game you have poor fan behavior that's just that's the center <laughs> of the bingo board yeah <laughs> and the game is closed out by a player who would come out is a domestic abuser. So I'm just like, like, what else could we include that would make this more fitting for the current moment? Because this had it all. It's an exhilarating game to watch. And like, if you want to show someone like one game to let them know what baseball was like, just like in this era, like this is the game that you show them, right? Like, is there a better example? Well, not every baseball game has a ricocheted throwback to the pitcher that just that basically almost decided the game. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But I feel like, like I was saying before, like there are more and more of these moments that pop up that it's very much like like baseball wanting to judge everything down to like the the thousandth place, you know, like wanting to get everything by the book down to the decimal point. And like this game had all of that and more. You know, 2017 World Series game five, really that whole World Series would have been is a real good indication of like the direction that baseball has gone and the the role that the Astros played in taking it there. The Astros and Dodgers played in taking it there. Um they showed a they showed a couple promos for other games during this broadcast and it was like uh <laughs> there was a promo for Astros Royals game four which the Royals would go on to win and play the Blue Jays in the ALCS and I was like imagine seeing the Royals in the playoffs <laughs> <laughs> that really fell out of favor quickly um I I wanted to ask you and this is probably the hardest question to answer that I'll ask you on this podcast but um if you if I gave you a magic wand and you could transform Josh Hamilton into the 2011 MVP version of Josh Hamilton, what does this game look like? How does this game go? I don't know that it changes a single thing, if I'm being quite honest with you. Really? I think you look at the way that the rest of that team was playing, and this is all like 100% speculation. None of us can say anything. Like he could have hit, had another four home run game or he could have just like struck out four times, you know? Yeah. Like there's no way of knowing, but it feels like one of those things where like when your team is playing badly, like it's very easy to kind of slip into that as well. Like it's, Baseball has this, even though it's an individual sport, like it's a very collective mindset of when things are going good for the team or things are going bad for the team. And I I can very easily see like Josh Hamilton pressing at the plate just like the rest of his team was. 
he's like the kind of guy who is made for that kind of um, approach where it's like, go big or go home, right? Swing out of your shoes and like you're either hitting a home run or you're the goofiest looking guy on the field right now. Yeah. I just couldn't help but think like every time he came onto the screen, first of all, he's like a complete afterthought in this game, which is nuts because you and I could do a whole like mini series on Josh Hamilton. And we don't, we're not even like the Josh Hamilton scholars of the world, but there's just so much there for anyone who's willing to look. But I just, every time he came up to the bat, I was like, every time he came up to the plate, I was like, this is just like Superman without his powers. Like he's like, this is just like they gave him kryptonite and he's just like up there just trying his darndest. And he like worked a walk and he hit a liner that was robbed in the outfield and he, he didn't really like he wasn't involved in the field at all. And he just looks like a little more diminutive than I always remember him looking in his prime, of course. And he's got like a weird goatee going on, which was not like how I identify him as. And he's he was like the the like looming giant in this game to me. And he just never, never appeared. And obviously this was ended up being the Encarnacion and Batista. And this ended up being the Blue Jays day. But like the Rangers lineup suddenly looks like the superior lineup if you put 2011 Josh Hamilton in the middle of it. Yeah, no. Or I'll, even if you if you turn back the clock on the entire Rangers team 3 years. Yeah, no. I having Prince Fielder there as well who like is now in the unfortunately in the twilight of his career. I mean, this is the last the last like real season that he'll have and he'll bow out prematurely uh in 2016 following his neck ailments that no longer allow him to play baseball right so like you're you're right that like in this lineup are like hints of like what could have been like relics of an older time where if things had just come together differently like yeah the rangers probably smoke the blue jays yeah in like three games yeah (laughs) (laughs) um okay alex final question how 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 the hell did this team lose to the royals what was going on with the Royals? We need to do like a deep dive narrative podcast on how the Royals worked small ball to win a World Series and how they continuously outplayed teams that had way more talent with them for three straight years. Ned Yost, baby. That Ned Yost magic. <laughs> <laughs> the thing about the Royals, like looking back on that 2015 team, is that it's really good. Is that you look at them and you're like, because I feel like in in my head, I have this image of the Royals, yeah, being this like small ball team that was just kind of like bunts and slap hits and steals. And they were, but it was a bunch of players who were all incredibly good at that. And in the middle of the lineup, like some legitimately good power hitters in guys like Salvador Perez and Eric Hosmer, a legitimately no. good power hitter. All right. <laughs> no. And and Mike Mustakas, like punchable faces. No to but him too. Guys who are good Goodbye. at playing the sport of baseball. Yeah, um, I think it, yeah, it, well said. They're good at playing the sport of baseball, right? Like Batista and Carnacion, like they're good at hitting home runs, but they're not as good at playing the game of baseball as Sal Perez. Right. God, I sounded just like Mike Francesa right there. <laughs> That is one of the things in yeah, this game, Yeah, he can though. hit home runs, but can he play the game of baseball? 
Does he <laughs> know he how to go up and take, take him at bat? <laughs> Does he know how to work a walk, Alex? I want to... Um, so let's zoom out a little bit because we've been doing these games for about a month now. And the more I watch playoff games only, because like, you know, when you watch the playoffs in context, you're like, weird shit happens, right? You watch 162 games of a regular season, you get to the playoffs, and you're like, yeah, weird stuff happens. I still believe the Dodgers were better than the Nationals last year. But weird stuff happened in a small sample size, and you write it off to small sample size. But when you watch these playoff games back to back to back and they're all being influenced in big moments by big players and you watch like you watch the mentality of someone like Marcus Stroman who like bears down and gets outs when he needs to even though they've been able to hit him a little bit or you know I watched 2015 NLDS game five between the Mets and the Dodgers a few weeks ago because SNY was broadcasting it. And someone like Jacob deGrom, who doesn't have as good stuff that day, gives up two runs in the first inning, but then just shuts it down for the rest of the game and really struggles through not having his best stuff that day. The more that I watch playoff games consecutively, like this exercise that we're doing right now, the more I like believe in shit, like, <laughs> like momentum and leadership and mentality and maturity and experience like all of the shit that i kind of am dismissive of the rest of the calendar year is it does it make me mike francesa to say that i sort of believe in it after watching these last five games no i mean that shit there you cannot watch this game and tell me that the mental composition of several of the players on the blue jays was not a big part of the reason that they won this game yeah you no, can't, you can't. A- absolutely no, and it's because like playoff baseball is just, frankly, it's a different beast from regular season baseball. It's something entirely different than what we watch five, six months out of the year. It's the stakes have changed. The, the way that the games are spaced out is changed. The way that pitchers are used is changed. Like everything is kind of flipped on its head and it's like all bets are off. And so like, yeah, I think that you're right. Like you would be forgiven for looking at this kind of thing and being like, yeah, the Jays just had the momentum. The Jays just wanted it more. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they did. They did. They did. They did just want it more. Yeah. That's it. That's it. You nailed it. All right, we figured it out. We figured out baseball. We should have just been listening to Francesca the whole time. <laughs> Turns out all these teams have have to do is to just want it. Did you know that, Bobby? They got to have more guts. <laughs> they you, showed some heart. You know what? I wanted some soul. I wanted baseball back, and Rob Manfred's trying to give it to us. The strangest boy said nothing good. I turned to walk the frozen ground all the way home. Okay, Alex, we're going to. Let's leave it open-ended for next week with what game we choose because um, just to let the listener behind the curtain, um, we usually choose right in the moment. (laughs) We can't come (laughs) up with one at the moment. We haven't decided which one we want to watch next week, but we're open to suggestions and we will be certain to keep everyone informed via Twitter if you want to watch along with us. So um, maybe we'll try to get some guests. Maybe we'll try to 
pick a game out of left field. But either way, we will let everyone know. Uh, Alex's deep dive Wikipedia internet corner. Go. (laughs) Thank you for the illustrious intro, Bobby. You didn't come up with a name for it yet. Oh, so now it's my fault. It's your segment. This is a story about the pitcher Ray Caldwell, who was so electric on the mound, he was once struck by lightning (laughs) and finished the game. Whoa! Ray Caldwell was a major league pitcher from 1910 to 1921, and he was known for his immense potential that was mostly hampered by his love for alcohol and partying, which is a theme regarding most baseball players like pre-1990. Imagine how good baseball players would have been if, like, they just weren't drunk all of the time. Mm-hmm. Many of his peers suggested that he could become one of the greatest pitchers of all time, if not for his self-destructive tendencies. He made his debut in 1910 for the New York Yankees. They were then the New York Highlanders. And though his career got off to a rocky start due to arm issues, he rebounded. He, he was on the Yankees. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> He rebounded and in 1914 had one of the best seasons of his career. He went 18 and 9 with a 1.94 ERA and threw 22 complete games. Baseball pre 1940 was, I would have loved to witness that. Please, if someone finds footage of like a game from 1910, that is something I want to witness. I don't, I don't know if that exists. I don't think they had like, I don't know, maybe they did. I don't think they had like live action speed cameras, or maybe like maybe like court sketches of the game, you know, like because there are no cameras. Uh, however, his poor conduct off the field caused multiple rifts between him and his manager Frank Chance. He was fined several times during the 1916 season. His alcoholism had become so pronounced that at one point in August, he literally disappeared without notice, leading the team to fine him and suspend him for two weeks. He didn't reappear until March of next year, and his whereabouts for the offseason were literally never revealed. He disappeared for seven to eight months, came back, and the team was like, as long as your arm's good, I guess. Fed up with his antics, the Yankees eventually traded him to the Red Sox after the 1918 season, though he underperformed for the Red Sox as well, and they released him in the middle of the 1919 season when he was picked up by the Cleveland Indians, who were then managed by Tris Speaker. And they saw an opportunity in a player once considered to have a great future. So, there Caldwell stood on August 24th, 1919, pitching the Indians to a 2-1 to lead against the visiting Oakland Athletics in his debut for Cleveland, needing just one more out to complete the game, with storm clouds rolling in. Caldwell came set, ready to deliver to Oakland shortstop Joe Dugan, When thunder clapped, lightning lit up the sky and descended down onto the field. A couple players had their caps knocked off. The Cleveland catcher had his mask flung into the air, and several players said they felt an electric jolt and numbness in their legs. Wow. After the ruckus settled, Caldwell lay in the middle of the field, on the mound, or actually in the pitcher's box, as it was known back then, unmoving. His teammates literally thought he was dead. There were varying theories on what had happened. Some claimed that the lightning had struck an iron rail near the press box and ricocheted off of it. One Indian historian was sure that the lightning had struck the ground near the pitching box itself, which is why Caldwell had the harshest hit. And later on, Caldwell himself would even theorize that the bolt had entered 
through the metal button on his cap, gone through his body, and exited through his metal spikes. Don't know if that's science, but <laughs> I, I guess he knows better than I. But there was still a game to finish. And after about five minutes of panic, Caldwell came to and checked to make sure his arms and legs were still working. You know, you know what you do. After you get hit by lightning, you just kind of shake it out a little bit. You're like, yep, left arm still attached, right arm still attached. I think we're, we're good to go. Mm-hmm. After the game, Caldwell w- would report that he had a burn mark on his chest from the incident. Oh, my God. Having literally been the conductor for a lightning strike, some players suggested, hey, maybe you should leave and go seek medical attention, as one might suggest to a friend who was recently struck by lightning. Seeking medical attention was not the same in 1919 (laughs) as it is now. Like, what are they going to do for you? They're going to be like, yep, you got struck by lightning. (laughs) You see? Yeah, seeking medical attention was like, here, drink this bottle of whiskey. That ought to make you feel better. Well, lo and behold, he said, no thanks, I think I'm good. And uh, perhaps thinking to make a good impression on his club, he had one more batter to retire. And so as the sky opened up and rain started to pour down onto the field, Caldwell quickly got Dugan to ground out to third. Game over. (laughs) Perhaps the incident provided a jolt to the aging righty season as he went and finished out the year with a 5-1 and record and a 171 ERA with his new club. And it all started with a complete game, allowing just four hits and one run. He walked two, struck out three, and was struck once himself. <laughs> Alex, these pitches now, they get the freaking blisters on their thumbs, on their pointer fingers, and they can't finish the game. They come out in the World Series, and you're telling me that this guy, he got struck by fucking lightning. <laughs> And he didn't come out of the game. And they tell me that baseball now is better than it used to be. Can you explain that to me? John Smoltz, meet Ray Caldwell, your, <laughs> your favorite human in the world. This is, pitchers today could really could, could take, a, take a cue from him. Okay, that's about... I think all we have for everyone <laughs> um, gone. This is the longest podcast we've ever done, I believe. Quite literally. But, um, <laughs> I want to thank everyone for listening through all of this. And uh, like I said, we're going to pick a game at some point over the next few days. And we're going to spend a little bit more time choosing these games. And hopefully we won't choose a game that's like four hours this time. Alex, I'm, I'm speaking mostly to you. <laughs> but if you have a, if you have a suggestion, um, it's tippingpitchespod at gmail.com, tipping underscore pitches on Twitter, and we will be back in your feeds next Monday. Thanks for that great nugget, Alex. You got it. Thanks for listening, everyone. If I was a color announcer and Bautista hit a home run like that, I, while the play-by-play was just doing his call, I'd be like, ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'd be like, I'd be like Lil John. Yeah. I think I'd, I, yeah, I would yeah, do yeah. like, 